This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Legends. This Monday on TNT, Legends returns for a thrilling new season. Sean Bean stars as Martin Odom, an undercover agent on the run, hunted by the FBI for a crime he doesn't remember committing. Follow him across Europe as he digs up clues from his past and uncovers his true identity. New episodes, Mondays at 10, 9 central on TNT. Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast brings you the latest updates from the campaign trail. The Oscar campaign, that is. Will the voters choose the establishment favorite? It's Spielberg and it's Disney. You know, it goes down easy enough. An upstart outsider with a compelling story. There's a chance you show it and the audience just goes, I do not accept Jason Segel as David Foster Wallace. Or has the eventual winner not even entered the race yet? And we were all sitting here this year waiting on these three December movies that yeah. no one has seen. Subscribe to Little Gold Men from Vanity Fair and Panoply. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, TV critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. I'm going to be flying solo this week and we're going to do something a little bit different. I recently released a book called Mad Men Carousel, which consists of 92 reviews covering every episode of the AMC drama, which just went off the air this year, sad face. The book also includes voluminous footnotes and a timeline tying events on the series to actual historical events occurring around the characters. While on book tour, I did an appearance at Book Court in Brooklyn with Roberta Lipp, the co-founder of the Mad Men-centric website Basket of Kisses, and Amy Cook, who contributed footnotes on food, fashion, sports, history, and a lot of other things. I also did a solo appearance at Word Books in Brooklyn with the book. Excerpts from our discussions of Mad Men plus questions from Mad Men fans about the show follow in this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming out today. Uh, Roberta Lipp is right here. She and her sister Deborah co-founded the what I think is the definitive Mad Men site, Basket of Kisses. And if you're here, you probably already know about it. And if you don't, boy, oh, boy, should you check it out. And then we also have uh, Amy Cook. She contributed voluminous footnotes to the Mad Men book. So we're here to talk about the show. I'll just pose this question to my two friends here. Uh, are you sick of the show now? I rewatched them last night, actually. <laughs> no. And I still saw new things. Yeah. It doesn't stop. I haven't gone back in a while since uh, leading up to the finale, somebody was marathoning it. And it was, there was something mesmerizing for me. There's something about TV for me, about turning on TV, as opposed to popping something into a something or Netflixing. There's just something different about that. And I kept, I would just turn this channel on, whichever, whoever did it, and I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> it doesn't stop. Yeah. I get asked that a lot because I've recapped the show. I recapped season, season four for uh, The New Republic and uh, seasons five through seven for Vulture. And I'm often asked, why the hell would you write a book about Mad Men when you wrote about it every single week? And the answer was because I still feel like there was something to discover. And people who don't watch the show and who maybe don't watch a lot of good TV don't believe me when I say that you can continue to revisit this in the way that you would continue to reread a book, a really good novel, and discover new things about it. But uh, to give you just one example, and this almost didn't make it into the book. I'll give you an example of something that made it into the book, and maybe, uh, maybe you can share something that didn't. Um, so we're fact-checking the section on season one, which I'm just going to like... Spoilers. I mean, you're here. Um, so the carousel speech. Don Draper gives his carousel speech, 
And he describes it, you know, he says it's not a spaceship, it's a time machine, enables you to travel as a child, through time as a child travels backwards and forwards. And he sort of sells this whole idea of it as a wheel that can move in, you know, backwards or forwards. And that's sort of the idea of this book, that it can be read, you know, that way as well. And it wasn't until we were fact-checking something else, I don't remember what it was, we're sitting there watching the episode where Don slips and falls on the stairs, which is New Amsterdam. The first flashback on the show occurs in New Amsterdam when Don slips on the stairs, and we happen to be in that episode to check something else. And I think it was probably Amy who said, what toy, what does he slip on? Oh, that's right. Okay. So, and I said, I don't know. And we freeze-framed it, and there's a shot of his foot slipping on the steps, and it's only there for maybe two seconds, and it's a wheelo. Do you know what a wheelo is? It's that toy, it's on a horseshoe-shaped wire track, and it's a wheel with magnetized tips, and it's moving backwards and forwards on this horseshoe-shaped track. It looks like a carousel. Yeah, and on top of that, the the shape of the wire is basically that of a horseshoe, and the horseshoe is a significant part of, um, not the gypsy and the hobo, um, the... the Hobo Code, thank you very much. God, I love this crowd. <laughs> the Hobo Code. Uh, yeah, so the, the dominant metaphor of life being like a horseshoe is sort of embedded in there, too. And that gives you a sense of the level of foresight and detail that, that Matthew Weiner, the creator of the show, invested in it. And this is not an accident. Like, somebody said, what, what does he slip on? The answer is a toy. What toy is it? Out of all the thousands of toys, that's the one they chose. Like, that's kind of a thing of beauty. And even better, the last episode of season one, he's reflecting on his life, and he's sitting on the stairs, and he's sitting in the exact same spot where he had tripped. That's right. Yeah, he's sitting in the exact same spot where he tripped on the wheelow, and of course, that is the first, when he falls on the stairs... And he hallucinates the birth of it. He remembers the birth of his brother Adam when he's knocked out. That's like a premonitory dream. And a week later, Adam, the adult Adam, appears again. And the appearance of Adam in his life is what begins Don's unraveling in season one. And then suddenly we get more and more and more and more flashbacks until by the time we get to um, episode 11, probably a third of the episode is dominated by flashbacks revealing the story of how he stole another man's identity in Korea. So, you know, what we have here is actually, the re- like, in every sense, the return of the repressed, and it's triggered by him slipping on this, basically, metaphor. Like, he slips on a metaphor. Um, that's not something you see every day when you watch TV. And we were able to get that into the book, but there was another thing which we're kind of kicking ourselves the Hershey's chocolate bar. You want to talk about this? Sure. So we actually happened to be watching a documentary because every once in a while we branch out. <laughs> and uh, it was on Hershey, Pennsylvania, and the fact that the original Hershey had run a home for orphan children. And then we went, oh, no. <laughs> because that whole episode with a Hershey's chocolate bar and, and childhood... And it was too late to add it in. Yeah, that's from uh, In Care Of, I believe, when he melts down and he's giving that disastrous Hershey's pitch, which is almost like a sick parody of the carousel. I was an orphan. I grew up in Pennsylvania in a whorehouse. I read about Milton Hershey and his school in Coronet Magazine or some other crap the girls left by the toilet. And I read that some orphans had a different life there. I could picture it. I dreamt of it. Of being wanted. Because the woman who was forced to raise me would look at me every day like she hoped I would disappear. 
closest I got to feeling wanted was from a girl who made me go through her John's pockets while they screwed. Well, I collected more than a dollar, she'd buy me a Hershey bar. We talked about a lot of these things. It's kind of a, a, amazing because I had, I felt like I had the plot, the characterization, and the structure fairly well in control. But then Amy and Roberta and Deborah kept coming in with these footnotes of things where I was like, what? You know, like, really? So, I mean, some of the depth of some of this. I had the advantage of binge watching, so it made it a lot easier to see details when to it see was... See the connections. Yeah. We watched from the beginning, like, just watching TV. From the beginning, as in, I was deciding if this was going to be a good show or not, because the accolades weren't out yet. You know, it was just like, well, let's check this thing out, you know. And I, I, I had just never seen anything like it. And I had um, just lost my job, so and it was summer, so I had a lot of spare time at home, right? So I just kept rewatching them, and I'd, I'd call Deb up. I'd be like, okay, wait, I just rewatched, and I just saw this, this, and this. And I used to get in arguments with people who were not fans of the show who would say, well, it's so obvious what's going on. And I would say, in what way is it obvious? And then they would describe to me the most superficial level of narrative and symbolism on the show. And I would say, well, of course that's what you got out of it. That's the first level. And there's like, usually in every episode of Mad Men, there's three or four or more levels to the storytelling on the show. And some of them have to do with, the, at their occurring at the level of the scene. Some of them are occurring in terms of characterization, where people are revealing through their word choice uh, what they're really feeling as opposed to what they're saying you know, in an expository way. And then there's the level of uh, the relationship between episodes within a season where one episode early will be setting up something that's going to happen later, and an episode later will be referring to something that has happened at the beginning of that season or perhaps in an earlier season, which is yet a deeper level of it. I was amazed to see the consistency of the characterization throughout the seasons as defined by the actions of the characters the decisions that the characters make and the way that Don is constantly running away. Like, that's a theme in his life. He's running away. The first time he really runs away in a big, dramatic way is when he takes a man's identity and basically he runs away from his past and he creates a new past. But all throughout season one, after that uh, slip on the stairs, he, there's this incremental running away that occurs. And we see it repeat and repeat and repeat as the thing goes along. And we see that happen with other characters as well. And they sort of, they not only repeat certain patterns of behavior, always thinking that they've learned something, but often demonstrating that they really haven't. But also they echo each other. Like in, there's a fascinating sort of parallels between the, the love lives of Pete and Don and the way that Pete often seems to be like the pipsqueak wannabe version of Don. But their, their chronic aversion to fidelity is something that they have in common. But then you also have this relationship between Roger and Don where Pete is looking up to Don like he's an older brother, and Don is looking up to Roger as if he's an older brother, and both of them want to be Don, and Don wants to be, you know, Roger. And it's like, it's insane. Like, you could graph this, and like, oh, so many other characters have, have similar sorts of affinities. Okay, I got one. Okay. That I just noticed the last time I watched the pilot. Oh, God. It's, it's not in the book, is it? It's, no, uh, no I don't <laughs> think so. Okay. It's, well, we could have done this. Infinity. And yeah, you know I know, that. I know. We'd we still be could. working on it if it was up to us. Yeah. yeah, we really would. So it's all in the pilot. That's something that Matt Weiner said to, to me in, in an interview years ago. Having worked on The Sopranos, he said, you know, if you look back to the pilot of The Sopranos, it's all there. Everybody is there. It's all there. 
And it's it's really true for Mad Men. That pilot is mm-hmm. perfect. Don comes into the office. This is after Midge, right? So it's like like the third scene of mm-hmm. the pilot. Lee Garner, his father, the whole Lucky Strike family will be here at four. You worried? No. If I was worried, I'd ask you what you've got. But I'm not. So I'm just going to assume you've got something, which means you should be worried. So you uh, came here because you wanted to watch me get dressed? No, I wanted to make sure you were here. Which doesn't indicate anything cold. But years later, when he had taken off, and they're all like, yeah, he does that sometimes. Yes. Now, now I go back and I see that, and I'm like, oh, we didn't watch him run away the first time and the second time. He's always done this. This is what he's always done, right. In yeah, and he does it. And he does it in, in season two when he goes off to L.A. and he takes off and he suddenly he's hanging out with the hedonists and nobody knows where Don is. And he comes back uh, because there's, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis is going on and there's also a crisis going on at the agency. And, okay, this reminds me of something else, this baby crying. <laughs> you know, of course, the primal trauma in Don's life is the death of his mother in childbirth. That's, the begin- that's sort of the original trauma. There's actually a moment in season three where he's fighting with Betty, and his relationship with Betty is very curious because it has, obviously, that's, you know, at core, husband and wife, uh, but there's also an element of, like, her being the mother that he never had, and he actually uses very maternal terms to talk to her at several different points during the run of the show, and there's a, t- a point where their marriage is disintegrating, and you, you get the sense that there's really a point of no return about to arrive at any moment. And she turns away from him and walks off, and you hear their baby crying in the background. And he's terrified that Don is terrified that she's going to leave him, and the ba- and in the background is a baby crying for its mother. Mm. And that's something that you don't immediately notice, maybe when you're watching the show, because you're thinking about the dramatic content of the scene, like who is in the scene and, and what is happening and why is it important. But it affects you. It really affects you. There were things you couldn't even see. There were things that were so brief that unless you paused it, you wouldn't know. I went to the museum exhibit, even the items in the secretary's This is the museum of the moving image, by the way. Yeah, they had uh, all sorts of objects in the desk just to put people in the right mind frame for it, even though they never were on the show. Yeah, the camera never saw the objects that were in the desk of, say, Peggy or Don, but they were in there. They were in there. You know, handbags were full. It, It was part of creating the realism from inside and out. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. The thing is, if you, know, if you haven't watched it, or if you haven't rewatched it, which I don't even understand that, <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a clever puzzle. And I didn't watch Lost, but like, right. I'm just guessing from what I know about Lost. Mm-hmm. It's not just a clever puzzle. Every time you discover something this like this, it's just like, oh, it, it's here. It's the feels, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll tell you what did that for me. Um, at the very end of Babylon, uh, when they're singing that song, Babylon, and We Remember, to the exact moment where the song says We Remember, there's um, a pic- picture of uh, Rachel Menken, and she's wearing a floral blouse. We remember thee, remember thee, remember thee, Zion. And I said, Matt, pause it. Yeah. It's poppies. It's covered in poppies. And for remembrance, and we went and looked up the poem, and and I, there's no way that that's a coincidence. Yeah, that's a, that's the kind of thing where, like, and, and if you scrutinize movies and television or literature or anything else, like, for a living, you know that certain things don't just happen, and you know how to spot them. And there are certain things that you would call a- happy accidents, 
and you kind of get to the point where you know them when you see them. But there are other things that can't happen unless all of this groundwork is laid to make them seem like they're just spontaneously happening. And Mad Men is filled with things that are like that. And the remarkable thing to me, anyway, is that it doesn't, it doesn't seem suffocating or predetermined to me. Like, it seems still to be alive. And it doesn't feel like, as you were saying, it doesn't feel like a puzzle that's waiting to be solved. And once it's solved, you can go, I solved it, I'm done. Yep, seen um, the sixth sense, been there, right? Right, it's not like that. It's not like that. And in fact, each each new round of discoveries, and I'm still making these damn discoveries watching the show, and every time I do, I smack my forehead and I'm like, that should be in the book. Um, but each new round of discoveries has this beautiful effect of pulling you even more deeply into the story and making you want to go back and watch it again. And like that's the highest compliment that I can pay to a work of popular art, that it doesn't just take a certain amount of your time from you and then at the end of it you decide was that worth my time or not it keeps giving to you like it keeps giving you excuses to come back and watch it again it keeps giving you intellectual stimulation and just pleasure from seeing a well-told story and there's always the promise that you're going to find something else there if you watch it again that, that you, you haven't gotten everything that there is to get and we have our first question. I'm so excited. <laughs> I had not thought this question through. I dropped in by accident. You guys seem like literature professors who, who've elevated the show by appreciating it to having the quality of literature, that quality that keeps giving. Thank you. So Pete, what's his name? Vincent Carthizer. Is now starring in the National Geographic movie about Thanksgiving as William Bradford. <laughs> it's... Um, a much ballyhooed made-for-television movie that's being credited in advance for, with being the first authentic telling of the Thanksgiving story <laughs> with full immersion in the lives of the Wampanoag Indians, <laughs> uh, etc. And Pete is your callow Puritan leader of the white people. Right. Yep. Well, he was a Campbell. <laughs> And right, and I got the king it. ordered it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it, it feels a lot like I was going to say life imitating art, but it's just agents picking up on connections. I think that's true, and I also think that um, I, I was struck by that even when the show was on the air because John Hamm, who has a great voice, was suddenly in demand to do ads. And I always thought it was a little strange that they would choose the voice of Don Draper to sell something and make you believe it. Right. You know, like if you recognize his voice and you watch the show, like wouldn't you want to not buy something that was sold to you by Don? Hi, this is like a sad question, like a negative question. But I'm wondering, is there a particular um, storyline or unit of some measurement that was your least favorite element of the show? Okay, go ahead. Suzanne, we've forgotten about her. What was she, season three? Three. Season three. The teacher. What can I do for you? I don't know. I wanted to talk. Right. Says the man as he unbuckles his pants. What do you want me to say? You've been flirting with me for months. So what? So I can't stop thinking about you. I just never believed it. I never understood it. I never got it. I thought there was something... I thought there was going to be some other shoe to drop, and there wasn't. He just fell in love with her, and... And then yeah. it didn't work out because whatever, because everything got worse, yeah. um, which is what always happens. But looking back at why that didn't work for from the viewer's uh, perspective, up until that point, there was a logic to Don's cheating. 
right. that that we'd seen. There was Midge, who sort of, you know, under the scope of cheating, Midge kind of made sense. She was kind of a buddy. Well, and she was also a harbinger of, of Don's fascination with the counterculture in all of its forms. Yes. Like that there's a beatnik inside of Don waiting to get out from the very beginning of the show. He just doesn't know it yet. It was That's the opposite just... of Austinine. Right. Right. Yes. Right. It's actually... She's the one you would have think thought would end up on the mountain, except that's not how she ended up. Right. See, see what happens. There you go. Um, right. But and then there and then there was Rachel, right? And then that was he fell in love. Mm-hmm. And then we saw him fall off, and there was Bobby, and then you get the sense there was. Then you start hearing there was more of a history, but we didn't see him fall in love a lot, and so it just was like, what do you? What are you doing? Well, there was a sense in which, like, I agree, that was my least favorite part of it, was season three. I felt like it started to lose it a little bit in season three. And it wasn't a lot, it wasn't a long stretch. It was maybe two or three episodes at the most, but it was when it was dealing with Suzanne. And that was a part of the show where I began to question whether or not there was any there there. Mm. Because I felt like they were repeating a lot of situations, and not in order to examine the idea of how lives repeat certain patterns over and over, but simply because they were just killing, you know, they were running out the clock. They didn't have enough story for 13 episodes. But then they rallied, and I think the back half of season three is some of the strongest stuff in the entire run of the show. So I don't know. But what do you think? That's actually when I stopped watching the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there you have it. And so actually, when I came back to it, I, I knew to stick with it. Uh, and go through it. I have to say, Diana, for me, I, I know that I was supposed to appreciate it and and get it, but I was really waiting for my people to come back. <laughs> yeah. I actually also think I think season two was a struggle, and and particularly watching it in real time. What Matt Weiner had to deal with was okay. So season one, there was this mystery, and then that gets solved. So now what? We can't do that every season. And what got set up as the mystery was, what was it, a 17-month gap between in their lives? Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And so the mystery was, what happened? Particularly, spoiler, Peggy's baby. Right. And it was painful getting through those first few episodes, trying to figure out what the hell was going on. I don't think worked as well as, as he had hoped. And then the baby was a big miscalculation because when he revealed that the baby had been given up for adoption, do you all know that? Because some people still were confused. We still, I still get questions. We all still get questions about, about what's, what, what actually happened with the baby. Isn't, isn't that kind of like a, a rock band's second album? Like the first album they spent their entire career making and the songs are amazing because they're 35 years, they're 10 yeah. years old. Step up here. Yeah. So... You know, a rock band makes their first album, and the songs are 10 years old. They've been working them on the road. They're finally recording. Their second album, they've got to write 12 new songs That's from true. scratch. So maybe the sec, maybe you know, the, fr- the the pilot was made. Then there was, I think, there was years until it got actually a series. Well, and it goes so, back even further than that. And in, in that in that Mad Men exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image, they have, among other things, a copy of his script that he wrote in college. Yeah. From 1992, which is titled The Horseshoe, which is basically Don Draper's childhood. Yeah, and then it got picked up, and he was like, holy yeah. ass, I have to write a whole show. Exactly. So right. I have another question. Yes. Two questions. One is about the ending with Peggy. Very controversial with her, and I forget you his name. You mean deciding to stay? At, at no, him, for her falling in love. And, oh, that, yeah. It was a very traditional TV ending, and a lot of people didn't like it. 
I, I liked it. I, I did mean, too. I, I just felt, yeah, it felt like, and I even said in my recap that it's like one of the ultimate examples I've ever seen of fan service. Yeah. You know, like they really, like people are just, why, doesn't, why don't they just get together? And then they said, yeah, let's have them get together. But I thought it made sense. And the reason why I liked it was that she didn't sacrifice anything in ending up with him. Yeah. Because what we see at the end of it she is... She didn't quit her job. No, she doesn't quit. Not only did she not quit her job, the last time we see them together, she's busily typing away. And he's like, I think he's like bringing her a mug of tea and giving okay. her a shoulder massage. <laughs> you know, that's heaven if you're a writer. <laughs> and, then, and then the other issue is about um, Jared Harris... Yeah. Price, is it? Yeah, Lane, Lane Price. Price. Lane Price. How did you feel about... I mean, I, I felt that was a great story, but I felt it kind of like his denouement, his ending, happened really quick. Mm. Like, you didn't realize he was embezzling money. I owed taxes on my portfolio, which I liquidated to put $50,000 into this firm after we lost Lucky Strike. If you needed it so badly, why didn't you ask? Why suffer the humiliation for a 13-day loan? Or I don't know, were there hints in there that I missed? It was all there. Stunningly, yes. And I wondered about that myself. And I actually went back, like, while editing some of the recaps from season five for this book, I noticed that I had some of those plausibility complaints where it seems like this is all happening too quickly. Where were the signs that Lane would be capable of such a thing? But in fact, from the very minute that he's introduced, we see that he is uh, not only trying to adopt a different identity as an American, you know, whereas his wife is not as comfortable with that. Right, and Mm -hmm. the Mets pennant, exactly. But also living beyond his means. Living beyond his means is a theme where he is more happy when he is living a more luxurious life than he can actually afford. And a lot of his decisions are about money, including uh, not striking out on his own. Like, he, you know, the decision to strike out and join this new firm is partly motivated by Don appealing to his sense of, of male pride and, and courage uh, as opposed to being a good employee and just going wherever the company tells him to go. And if you go back to that season opener... Money is a massive theme through everybody's storylines, but Lane's was finding that wallet. And don't forget, uh, there was. I forgot the, about the wallet until yeah. you just mentioned it. I actually, yeah. that I actually, we had, I, I think I had written a piece all about the money theme in that episode. And also, don't forget the, the episode where his father comes in and, and just, I mean, this is a guy that it, it, it was plausible. And just to address the um, finale, I thought he did a great job balancing. This sort of show that everybody accuses nothing of happening, and it's if you consider some of the things we're talking about, it's ridiculous that people say that. But the sort of natural, not tidy endings, with some very satisfying stuff. He gave us, I thought, a good balance of both, and the the fan serving definitely. Matt didn't see that stuff. It was Jay Ferguson, the actor. He was like, no, I've been in love with her since the beginning. I don't care what the script says. So it really, he's always played at that point. Thus ensuring himself continued employment also, as well as serving the needs of the story. That's right. Good on you, actor. (laughs) Well done, sir. Let's uh, take one more question. One of my favorite characters is Pete. I think he's got a very compelling storyline through all um, six seasons. And you see his growth in many ways and his downfall. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between Pete and Don and secrecy and knowing there's a, a hidden identity behind this um, because they have a, an odd relationship, but it's also built on trust, too, and shared understanding. We could be here all day if I address this at length because the Pete and Don relationship is one of the richest and, and funniest ones on the show. But I feel like what Pete 
sees in Don as a guy who has given himself permission to be the person that he, uh, that he needs to be. And that's something that Pete has trouble with uh, because of his own conditioning, not just from his family, but, the, but society as a whole. And a lot of the struggles that they go through with regard to their home lives are very similar throughout the course of the show. But of course, what Pete doesn't realize, even after he discovers that Don was once uh, Dick Whitman, he doesn't realize the extent to which Don is also struggling, the way that Don, he has this sort of whiplash where he keeps going back and forth between a sort of a bohemian mentality and something that's much more traditional and even reactionary. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Legends. This Monday on TNT, Legends returns for a thrilling new season. Sean Bean stars as Martin Odom, an undercover agent on the run, hunted by the FBI for a crime he doesn't remember committing. He's had many undercover personas, but which one is he really? FBI agent? Wounded Iraq vet? Or Russian gangster? Join the search across Europe as he digs up haunting memories and uncovers his true identity. New episodes, Mondays at 10, 9 central on TNT. Thanks very much for coming out tonight. If anybody asks you why I showed up late and disheveled, just say it was an homage to Don Draper. (laughs) Um, I'm not sick of Mad Men yet. It's really an incredibly rich show that rewards repeat viewings. And, and it's easy to say that about any show that's halfway decent or that you enjoyed watching because at a certain point it becomes comfort food. But it's really true in this case in that it, it continues to disclose new little details to me and new evidence of the, of the intricacy of its architecture, the way the story is told, the way that certain bits of foreshadowing pay off later and the way that they kind of retroactively plant things via flashbacks that are, gonna, that are also going to figure into the story. And it's so subtle. Some of it is so subtle. And just like, for example, in season four, there's a scene where Don is debating the results of this research that Faye, the researcher, is doing. And she absolutely can't get him to talk about his childhood, which, of course, is something that happened in season one as early as episode two when Don and Betty are out for dinner with Roger and Mona, and they're all telling little stories about their childhood. What about you, Don? Do you have a nanny? I can't tell you about my childhood. It ruined the first half of my novel. Don doesn't like to talk about himself. I know better than to ask. An ad man who doesn't like to talk about himself? I think I may cry. (laughs) It's not that interesting a story. Just think of me as Moses. I was a baby in a basket. Don makes jokes and spins fanciful yarns and is clever and deflecting, but he won't talk about his past. And at the time, you wonder why, but as the story goes on, you start to understand why. Also, just things about the consistency of the characters continue to dazzle me. This is a show, this is maybe the only show that I can think of besides Seinfeld, strangely, where you can honestly say that the characters on the show behave with 100% psychological consistency from start to finish. There's really nothing in the show, looking back on it, that I think of as being out of character for any of the major characters. And even some of the things that you feel like are out of character or uncharacteristic of them in some way, when you look back on it, you go, yeah, I can see why they did that. And I can see why uh, Don keeps running away because that's what he always does and it's established as a pattern as early as adolescence, uh, post-adolescence when he comes back from the army. And he continues to run away in various forms and sometimes it's in little ways like he, you know, he slips out of a meeting without telling anyone he's going to do it and in other cases he disappears from a business trip to Los Angeles and goes and hangs out with some hedonists and then 
goes and visits the original Don Draper's wife, and he continues to do it. He continues to do it. And even even as late as uh, season five and The Other Woman, there's that moment where the partners have a meeting about whether or not Joan should sleep with Herb, the uh, the Jaguar dealer, to get to land, to help land Jaguar. And Don expresses outrage, but he doesn't really stay and argue the case against doing it. He just bolts, and he flees again. And of course, it goes forward because he's really not. I, I always blame Don a little bit more than other people do for for the fact that it happened because. All he did was state a preference and leave. He didn't actually fight for it. But when you think about what's happening with Don, the fact that he was the son of a prostitute who died in childbirth and that he spent some time in a brothel when he was younger, you understand why he has this allergic reaction to prostitution under certain scenarios, particularly when it when something like that is going to be done by a mother and, and, and Joan is a mother. And it's the fact that she's a wife and mother that, that appalls him so much, not the fact that she's going to do it at all. And in fact... Just a couple of seasons before that, we've got the moment where Sal is being pressured to have sex with the guy from uh, Lucky Strikes, uh, Lee Garner Jr., and he doesn't want to do it, and Don is very cold to him. You must have been really shocked. I was. Believe me. But nothing happened. Because nothing could have happened because you're married. Don, I swear on my mother's life. You sure you want to do that? Who do you think you're talking to? I guess I was just supposed to do whatever he wanted? What if it was some girl? That would depend on what kind of girl it was and what I knew about her. You people. He's very cold and dismissive, and it's probably partly because he's a gay man and Don can't understand him or empathize with him in the way that he can with other people. It's just amazing. And I don't think that the show could have been as good as it was if Matthew Weiner hadn't cut his teeth on The Sopranos, which deals in a lot of the same themes. And that's where he really kind of upped his game as a television writer, was working with David Chase and all the writers and producers and filmmakers and actors there. And you could see traces of his fascination with psychology bubbling up there, particularly in the way that the the dreams and the use of dreams and the storylines changed later in uh, seasons five and and six. But I think he really took it to another level here to the point where I think Mad Men, more so than any other drama I can think of, really deserves to be thought of as a novel for television. And it's a really good novel, and it's one that reminds me of and I think stands favorable uh, alongside some of the literary works that that inspired Mad Men. Like I think you can look at Mad Men and then look at Death of a Salesman or uh, a lot of the kitchen sink dramas of the 50s, or John Dos Passos's trilogy, um, the USA trilogy, which is about life in the first half of the century. And Mad Men is often thought of as being kind of an answer, a, a second half of the 20th century answer to that, or the fiction of John Cheever. And, and I don't think Mad Men comes out looking inferior compared to any of those, although it's not exactly like any of those. And there's always something going on on multiple levels. There, you know, There's the level of... There's the superficial level of what's happening with the characters, where are we in the story, what's going to happen next. But then there's this other layer of themes and symbols that are just straightforward and literary in nature. And then there's yet another layer that's interconnected to that one, which is the relationship of the characters to national history. And a lot of times national history seems to kind of glancingly reflect what the characters are going through personally at that moment. And it's never quite as on the nose as I think the show has been accused of being. And the fact that they manage to make reference to 
but never directly confront a lot of the major events of the 60s, I think is a testament to how subtle that show is. I mean, this is a show that had um, its third season set in 1963, which is the year of the Kennedy assassination, and was pretty much obligated to do a Kennedy assassination episode in some way. But since every show and every movie set in that period deals with the Kennedy assassination, and most of them deal with it the same way by having people staring in shock at the television set and crying, the question of how do we do this in an original way is something that was bound to paralyze the folks who made that show. And what they did was they came up with two episodes. Guy walks into an advertising agency, which is the first Kennedy assassination episode, which replays the killing at Dealey Plaza with the lawnmower on the floor of the agency. And so many of the details are are exactly spot on drawn from that event, including the fact that if you line up the progress of the lawnmower through the office with footage of the Kennedy motorcade, the motorcade braking and the lawnmower swerving occurs at exactly the same point, down to the frame. Like that's that's the level of anal retentiveness that the <laughs> people who made this show brought. Um, and that is almost, you know, that's set in uh, over July 4th weekend in 1963. So it's actually kind of a, a premonitory nightmare, but it's very oblique. Like a, it's, it's foretelling the Kennedy assassination in, in a way that's almost like modernist, as modernist fiction might. And then you get later in the season and you have The Grown Ups, which is the episode that deals in a straightforward way with the Kennedy assassination. And I have to say, those two episodes are two of my very favorite episodes of the show, because if you put them alongside each other, they really do feel like they complete each other. And they're both about this idea of uh, an event like that being like something out of a horror movie. But the first version of it, Guy Walks Into an Advertising Agency, is really like a straightforward, classic kind of horror movie, like a campfire story that you would tell to scare little kids. And there's all these portents with... You know, the close-up of the straight razor shaving Don's neck and the story that Roger tells about his father getting in the car wreck. My father was the tallest, handsomest, vainest man in New York, and he got his nails done. Woo! <laughs> had his fourth coronary behind the wheel and hit a tree. The windshield severed his arm, and he was dead, so they never put it back on. In the casket, he had one hand. The nails were perfect. I don't believe that story. Okay, so he hit another car, not a tree. And also little touches like uh, one of the Brits who's visiting the office. uh, The the Brits uh, come to visit the office, including a guy who's kind of the Kennedy figure. And um, the office secretary says, let me give you the three-penny tour, which is a very strange thing to say because the colloquial thing to say in the United States would be, let me give you the nickel tour. And, of course, you think of the three-penny opera, and then once you start to study the plot of the three-penny opera, you see how uh, that there's a reason why he makes that reference. You know, it's, it's this bloody, you know, literally Brechtian drama that is aware of itself as it's telling a story to you. And then you get to the grown-ups, and that's almost about the, um, the act of watching a horror movie. And the first time the Kennedy assassination intrudes on the story in that episode... We're with Harry Crane and Pete Campbell in Harry's office, and there's a television set in the back of the room placed directly between them, and it's a wide shot, and the, te- and the screen within a screen of the TV is very, very small. And when regular programming is interrupted by a special bulletin telling you that the president has, has been shot, the conversation, the mundane conversation, continues between these two characters. And so the effect is you know what's coming. 
you know, you know, they planted enough clues that you know this is the real Kennedy assassination episode, but they're not acknowledging it. So it's almost like you're sitting there watching, a, you know, Halloween or Friday the 13th and going, look behind you, look behind you, look behind you at what's happening behind you, and they don't. So many of the episodes can, can withstand that kind of incredibly geeky analysis. Like, you, you know, you pick apart a lot of episodes in Mad Men the way you would the Zapruder film or, or the way you would take apart a puzzle or do a crossword. But I never really feel like I've solved the show. Like, I don't feel like the way that I know some people talk about, say, films by Christopher Nolan, where they come out of it and say, I got it. I can, I'll tell you what actually happened at the end of Inception. And whether or not you can really come to a definitive conclusion about the end of that movie is debatable, but I think you definitely have a better shot at it than you do with explaining everything there is to explain about Mad Men. I would like to just open the floor to questions and comments and just talk about Mad Men if you guys are game for that. So in the, the history of sort of recaps, where does sort of Mad Men fit into this? Did it launch that phenomenon? Did it make it bigger, better? Was it late? Mad Men kicked everything up to a whole new level. And, and it was partly because, um, and I can say this as somebody who's recapped a lot of different kind of shows, when you decide to recap a show, you want the show to be something that rewards your time after you're done watching it, like where you don't feel you're, like you're just making stuff up to fill space, and you don't want to be like, like a hacky stand-up comic just reciting the details of the plot and cracking jokes, because I think that's the, that's the kind of recap I don't want to read. But even a show like uh, Justified or, or Homeland or Scandal or something like that, like even though it's so rich in character and incident, you can't examine it from all of these different angles in the way that you can an episode of Mad Men. And then there's another factor, which is that Mad Men, because of the kind of show that it is, the kind of stories that it tells, it was of interest to people who didn't normally get hooked on TV. And it almost appealed to the same people who might have gotten hooked on um, upstairs, downstairs on PBS in the 70s. And it, frankly, it just attracted a demographically more desirable group of people. Like it was people who had gone to college and, and uh, you know, made more money than maybe the, uh, you know, the average viewer of Walking Dead, which has a much broader reach. And, and I used to, when, when you watch the show live, you could see there were ads for Mercedes and there were ads for, I think Jaguar might have taken an ad at some point. I mean, there were a lot of products where you go like, this is not something I would see advertised on, you know, Squawk Box, you know, or something like that. But I think the fact that you could look at it from all those different angles really, really changed the way that people recap things. It also moved um, some publications to get into the recap game who weren't otherwise in it. And one of them is The New Republic, which I started to write for. They had never recapped television shows until I emailed an editor there and said, hey, I would like to recap this show for Salon, which is where I was writing at the time, but unfortunately they already have somebody doing it. I'm going to watch this show anyway, and I'd love to write about it. Can I do it for you? And they, she said, let me get back to, you know, let me talk to the publisher and get back to you. And she said, yeah, why not? Hi. Well, the first thing that I did want to ask you, and the last thing that you mentioned, was the end of Mad Men. And I just wanted to know if you were satisfied with the ending. Yeah, I'm very satisfied with the ending. And, and I liked it a lot the first time I saw it, but I've, I've grown more and more fond of it as I've gone back and rewatched the whole run of the show to write this book. And um, it doesn't seem, again, out of character at all for Don, and it doesn't seem out of character for the show. And in fact, there are a number of scenes and situations that sort of prepare us for that. 
And the most obvious one is the scene in the episode The Mountain King where Don goes to visit Anna, and she gives him a tarot card reading. That can't be good. It is. It's the end of the world. It's the resurrection. Do you want to know what this means or not? No, I don't. She goes on to give him a very positive reading of the tarot cards that are laid out on the table and says that it's... um, the reading is about connectedness and that you're connected to the air, the water. Smell the ocean. This is the one. Who's she? She's the soul of the world. She's in a very important spot here. This is you, what you are bringing to the reading. She says you are part of the world. Air, water, every living thing is connected to you. nice thought it is what does it mean it means the only thing keeping you from being happy is the belief that you are alone what if that's true if you want to leave a question for us you can call 646-504-7673 Thanks to producers Sam Dingman and Sarah Abdurrahman and Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers of Panoply. Happy Thanksgiving. I'll be back with Margaret and Gazelle with a full episode again next week. 